Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. We're going to be there just very briefly, and then we'll flip over to Matthew 5. Exodus 20, verse 14, is the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments, which God gave to us as a summary of His will for our lives. And then in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus Christ gives His commentary on the seventh commandment. So we'll be reading both of those this morning. First of all, from Exodus chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. And then from Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, Jesus said to us, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, Christian writer, asks us at one point to imagine ourselves as being assigned to be observers of another culture, an advanced culture, but a culture that was very isolated from other cultures. And he asked us to imagine ourselves walking into that culture and realizing that one of the most popular uh, activities, one of the most popular forms of entertainment, is for the people of that culture to gather together in a great theater. And as you go to that theater and begin to witness this great entertainment event, you notice that the, the lights go down, everybody's buzzing with anticipation and, and excitement. And then the music starts to play and it gets louder. And the people hearing the music start to get more and more excited and they start shouting and whistling. And then the curtains begin to part on the stage. And there, standing in the middle of the stage in a single spotlight, is a man, ordinary man, but holding a large platter. And on that platter is a metal cover. And as the music gets louder and louder and the people start stomping and yelling and whistling, the man starts lifting the cover ever so slightly and ever so slowly. And just at the point when you're just barely able to tell what's on the platter, you look and you're shocked to see that all it is is a single strip of bacon. And just as you realize what it is, all the lights go down and everybody cheers and Everybody walks out of the theater having had their moment of entertainment. C.S. Lewis asks us to say, what would your observation about that culture be? What would your conclusion be about what's this culture like? He said, probably your first conclusion would be that there is a great famine in that land. That people are starving for food. And so just the glimpse of a strip of bacon is enough to 
put them into rapturous delight. But what if you continued your study of that culture and found out that actually people were consuming massive quantities of food and that they couldn't stop thinking about food all day long. As a matter of fact, all of their TV shows were about food. All their songs were about food. They were totally obsessed with food, even though they had so much of it everywhere they looked. What would be your conclusion about your culture, at that, this isolated culture at that point? He said the only conclusion you could come to is that somehow this appetite, this natural appetite, had become very distorted, corrupted, perverted. That something very dark and twisted had happened to something that is a natural part of human desire. Well, his point's pretty obvious. A very condemning statement on our own culture. He uses it as an illustration of what's happened to our sexual desires in this culture. To show us that we have taken something that God has given us, that was in His original intent for His creation, to be a beautiful, beautiful gift to be shared between a husband and a wife. We've taken that and we've rebelled against God and we've abused that gift. We've used it in all the wrong settings and all the wrong ways, which God warned us not to do. And as a result, it's become this dark, twisted obsession. Lewis writes in that same chapter, here's his, his conclusion. He says, The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now this is so difficult, Lewis says, and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct is wrong, that it has gone terribly wrong. Well, you know what conclusion our culture has come to. They say the Bible is antiquated. The Bible is wrong. But let me ask you, has all of the overwhelming abuse of that part of life led to great joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in that area of life? Or is it possible that Christianity was right all along? That God's Word is what we need to go to to find out what this desire in us is all about. To go back to our Creator's original intent. To rediscover it. The world says that the purpose of sex is self-expression, self-realization, and self-fulfillment. And it's a right that we all have to express whenever, however, in whatever context we want. But the Bible tells us that this is a gift given to a husband and a wife and when we receive it as He intended it to be used, it is one of life's most precious gifts. Go back to Genesis. Go back to the creation. Go back to God's original intent when He made us man and woman in His own image. He said to the husband and the wife, Adam and Eve, at the beginning, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
You need to understand that in order to understand why the seventh commandment, among the ten commandments which summarize God's will for our lives, why the seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery. It's because of what God intended that part of our lives to be. The seventh commandment was given by God to protect the precious gift of marital intimacy. To protect it. To ensure that we can find great joy and fulfillment through it. It used to be a word that was very popular in Christian morality that you don't hear much anymore. The word chastity. It's a word that's often more mocked than anything these days. But understand that chastity, we tend to think, when we think of that old word, if you ever think of it, you tend to think of it as meaning somebody who never has sex. Nobody has ever has, you know, never involves themselves in that area of life. That's not what chastity means. Chastity, to be chaste, means to enjoy it only in the context in which God originally intended to give it. And going back to how C.S. Lewis defined it, either in the context of marriage or to be totally abstinent. Those are your choices in life. If you want to experience God's good gift. This commandment, broadly speaking, and we've noticed that all the commandments, you have the immediate meaning, and then it has a broader interpretation. And it, more broadly speaking, it forbids any sexual activity outside of the relationship between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant of marriage. So it forbids adultery. It forbids fornication when there isn't a married partner involved. And it forbids homosexuality, among many other variations. Anything that doesn't fit what God intended it to be. And so let's talk about what God intended it to be. Because that's not God, as we've seen with every other commandment we looked at, that's not God saying, I'm withholding something really neat from you. I'm withholding something really valuable from you. He's protecting us from what abuse of his gift will do. When you think about what that part of our life is all about, it is so misconstrued in our culture. But you go back to Genesis and you find out it's about that whole concept of one flesh. Being one flesh certainly speaks of physical intimacy, but it means so much more than that. Genesis 4, I love the language of the first recorded sexual act in Scripture. It says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, which doesn't mean they sat down for a cup of coffee and talked about their lives and shared their backgrounds and their testimonies because it's the very next thing it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, a son. But using that word is very intentional in Scripture because knowing your spouse is what the sexual aspect of a relationship is meant to be about. To become one flesh with your spouse means to know your spouse, to express your knowledge of your spouse, a comprehensive knowledge of your spouse, an intellectual knowledge of her, an emotional knowledge of her, a spiritual knowledge of her or him, and a physical knowledge of her or him. That's why I included that little drawing that's in your notes in the bulletin, if you notice there in the sermon notes space. It's uh, 
has the little stick figure, the one with a dress, which is the woman, by the way, and the one without the dress is the man. And in between, you have four letters, I-E-S-P. That's not a Myron Briggs personality type. That represents the way in which we get to know each other, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And this little drawing, as simplistic as it is, every one of my children has seen it because I've shared it with them when they hit those early teenage years. And when they start to think about dating, they start to think about the other, the opposite sex as being anything but yucky. That's when I start, when I pick up on, you know, cues that, that, that that's what's going on in their mind and their heart. I'll sit down and I'll pull out a napkin or something and I'll draw this little chart and I'll give them all the same speech. I'll say, listen, God's intent is for you, hopefully, not necessarily I'll talk about it in a moment, but hopefully God's intent for you is to find a man or a woman that you can become one flesh with. That's God's good gift for you. It's coming in the future. It's something wonderful. And as you try to find that person, as you start to think about finding that person, you're going to get to know many members of the opposite sex. And it's going to begin with an intellectual knowledge. You're going to sit down over that cup of coffee and you're going to share things about your likes, your dislikes, your life, your history, your family. And as you get to know that person intellectually, you're going to dismiss many people and say, you know, we're just not compatible. But there's going to be somebody that's going to come along and you're going to start to say, I really like this person. I like being around this person. And you're going to start to form an emotional tie and an emotional bond with that person. And that's what that romantic feeling is really all about. And if you're Christian, you're going to look for another Christian so that you can have a spiritual bond, which goes much deeper than that intellectual and emotional bond, a oneness in Christ that's going to begin to develop. But understand that God has wired us so that all aspects of our being, intellect, emotions, spirit, and body, are meant to progress towards one flesh. When that emotional bond begins to take hold, that spiritual bond begins to take hold, that physical bond becomes an overwhelming desire. So do not awake love before it's time. Do not enter into relationships and commitments that are going to drive you on that, you know, God's wired you this way. You can't vary it. He has wired you to move towards becoming one flesh with a person that you have that kind of affection for, that kind of bond with. But understand that sexual relations are not meant to come into play until you're ready to make the commitment that the Bible calls a covenant with that person. A lifelong commitment to give yourself to that person. And at that point, you're able to, to physically know that person and express yourself in that way. Those four aspects of your being are meant to develop together. And if the physical intimacy gets ahead of the other three, it will invariably mess up the relationship. So I'm sharing this with you for your protection, for your joy, for your fulfillment. God's not trying to withhold something from you. He has a precious gift for you coming down the road. But for right now, understand that you need to not get ahead of yourself. And then you think about our culture that treats people like weirdos if they don't go to bed with each other by the third date. 
What's wrong with this picture? That's why Paul says, in one sense, we have the scripture writing, you know, scripture that tells us where Paul says, don't, uh, pre- or don't um, unnecessarily delay marriage because it's better to marry, he says, than to burn with, the old translation said to burn with lust, but a better translation is a newer one, says don't burn with passion. Understanding that if you're in maturity in terms of intellect and emotions and spiritual awareness, if you have the maturity to be able to make a covenant, to make a commitment to another person, don't unnecessarily delay the physical because you're setting yourself up for tremendous sin. And some of you that have been in a relationship and an engagement or whatever, you know what that's like. So it's better to not unnecessarily delay marriage, Paul says. But on the other hand, if you don't have the intellectual and emotional and spiritual maturity to enter into a lifelong covenant and commitment, then you shouldn't be at that place. You need to avoid premature commitments and relationships that go deeper than what God allows. Lest you destroy the gift that He wants to give you. Understand that our desire for physical intimacy isn't just another appetite. That's the danger of C.S. Lewis's analogy. It's not just another appetite. When our sexuality is expressed in accordance with God's will, the way God intended it from the beginning, then it is sacred. There's something unique, something very sacred about it. That part of expressing our nature. You know, the, the Bible often uses earthly realities. Things like water or stone or, or trees or sheep. The Bible often uses earthly realities to illustrate something that we understand in the real world, something to, to illustrate some great spiritual truth. But with marriage, it's one of the unique things that it goes the other way, where there's a spiritual reality that God creates something to illustrate. And that's what marriage is. God created marriage so that we would understand the greatest spiritual truth. What is the Bible about, after all? It's about a covenant relationship between God and his people, where God says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And he makes an eternally binding commitment to his people. And marriage is a picture of that relationship. Ultimately, as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ who is presented to us in Scripture as the bridegroom and the church is the bride. That's why we call marriage a covenant. It's a commitment to God that only by His grace can we fulfill to be faithful to a man or a woman for a lifetime. That's why Tim Keller in his book on marriage calls sex covenant cement. He says, it's a sign and a seal of our oneness before God. It's a sign and a seal that represents, that says to your spouse, I belong completely and permanently and exclusively to you. That's what it says. And Keller goes on to say, you must not use sex to say anything less than that. Phil Riken, in a little more crass way, compares it not to cement, but he says that sex is like super glue. 
He says, if you use it at the wrong time or in the wrong place, it always creates an awful mess. The wrong things get joined together and getting them unstuck again tears at the soul. That's why adultery is forbidden. It's because sex is a great force for good, but only when it's used to join one man and one woman for life. And understand that it's the covenant of marriage, that lifelong commitment to one another, that gives the husband and the wife the feeling of security and confidence so that they can be really open with one another, and really vulnerable, and really trust one another at a very deep level. It's because of the covenant. I want to take a moment just to speak to single people because I know I'm talking to a lot of single people this morning. I wish I had more time to dwell on this. I have to do this quickly. I'm just going to make a couple of quick points. But what I would do is, is point you to Tim Keller's book on marriage. The very last chapter in that book, even if you rip out all the other chapters and throw them away or stick them on a shelf for later, read the last chapter if you're single because he addresses the topic very well. But just a couple of thoughts. What about people who either are temporarily single or maybe even permanently single? From Scripture we know, Paul says, Paul affirms, along with all the rest of Scripture, that marriage is a precious, beautiful gift from God. But he also acknowledges that some people are called to singleness. He himself was called to singleness. That God put that call upon him and he voluntarily gave up the wonderful gift of marriage and everything that goes with it so that he could serve God the way that he felt God wanted him to serve. And he understood, just like any of you would understand, that you're giving up something very, very, very valuable. But it's for serving the Lord. It's for the calling that he's placed upon your life, whether that's temporarily or even permanently. And understand that we know that some people don't choose to be single. Some people have singleness thrust upon them for many different reasons. But we understand that God is sovereign and God is good. And that he often withholds many good, valuable gifts from us. So that we would learn to and live in trust to him. That we would be able to say that even if we have no other blessing in life, having Jesus Christ for eternity is enough. I can be content. But in either case, it's God's calling. Whether you voluntarily seek it or whether God imposes it upon you, it's a calling. And by His grace, by His Word, and by His Spirit, He can give you the strength to endure it. To make that sacrifice for His glory and for His kingdom. But let me take you back to the seventh commandment. But instead of going back to Exodus, let me take you to Hebrews chapter 13. Because in verse 4, the writer of Hebrews gives the seventh commandment again. And he, put, he puts it in positive words. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Honor marriage. Protect and honor the marriage bed. Because that's the arena where appropriate physical expression of love and acceptance and covenant commitment is meant to be carried out. Honor it. Protect it. How do we do that? How do we keep the marriage bed pure? just going to quickly give you three principles, I think, based on Scripture. Simple principles. First of all, focus on the root of the sin and not the fruit of the sin. Primarily on the root of the sin. 
not the fruit of the sin. As we've seen with all the other commandments, Jesus deepens our understanding. When he addresses the Ten Commandments, he affirms them and then deepens our understanding of how we break those commandments so that we would come to him for grace. And he does it here, too. He talks about what we talked about, hidden murder. Here he talks about hidden adultery in in Matthew 5, in that passage we read earlier. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, there he's not saying if you just admire a beautiful woman or a a gorgeous guy that he's not saying that that admiration of God's creation is inherently wrong. He's not saying the temptation is wrong, but he's saying that if you allow sin to take hold and your admiration of beauty becomes lust, the desire to have, to possess, it becomes sin. And that's this that's the root of the sin. And that's the battle we must fight. In James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, James describes the life cycle of sin. He describes it in this way. He says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. That's the life cycle of sin. And just like human life, sin is conceived and is hidden long before it becomes public and open and observable. I have, if you ever come to visit my house, especially if you come in the summer, you look at my yard, you'll notice I have a lot of weeds. I have a high tolerance for weeds. Some people have no tolerance for weeds. I can live with weeds. They're all through my yard. And when the grass gets really long, I haven't mowed the lawn as, as often as I should, and the grass gets really long, then, they, then that's when they bother me. I don't like seeing them in the middle of the yard. So guess how I fix the problem? I mow the lawn. Guess what happens a week later? All those big, ugly weeds are back again. Because I won't take the time to go to the root of the problem. I won't remove the weeds. I just take away the manner in which anybody could observe them. And that's the way most people fight sexual sin. Make it private. Keep it in my heart. Keep it in my mind. So I can keep this good front up in front of everybody else. But Jesus won't let you do that. He knows you completely. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your sexual sin. Even the sexual sins you've hidden from yourself. And the only way to gain victory in this part of your life, the only way, is to draw the line in the sand, the battle line in your heart and fight the battle there by God's grace. And God's strength. Because if you only fight it in your observable behavior, you're never, ever going to gain victory in this part of your life. I know that sounds overwhelming. We are all, by Jesus' definition, adulterers and fornicators. Go ahead and wear that label. We're all there in our hearts, if not in our actions. And I think sometimes we, especially those of us who are a little older in life, we tend to get a little judgmental of this current generation because there's so much depravity, so much ugly depravity in our culture. But, you know, I was around, you know, when I was a teenager, it was hard to get pornography. (laughs) You had to have a friend who had an uncle who had it hidden in a back cupboard somewhere and you had to kind of pass it around 
you know, in little scraps and pieces, you know, but things are so different now. I've watched myself go through the computer age. I've watched all my children. As the technology gets faster and faster, the processors get quicker and the images come up faster and they load faster and just a click. And you can have any kind of depraved pornography you want in the world. I grieve that this generation faces that kind of temptation and I never had to face. I can't be judgmental. I look at what my children have had to face in that temptation and I know it would have crushed me. I would have been... I can't even think how much I'd be enslaved to that sin if I faced the kind of access they have. But you know what? I have a word of hope for you that are facing the battle today. Because the greater the degree of the temptation you face, the greater the victory when God brings it and the greater strength that you can have. If you can resist the urge to click and see a picture today, you're going to be so much stronger against that temptation than anything that I ever was, was, I had to deal with that I could ever even hope to achieve. And I know young Christian men that are fighting that battle of the heart over and over and every day of their lives and they're winning and, and I've experienced deliverance myself. It, it's a wonderful thing for God to give you that victory and that freedom so that you can experience the joy of what God intended that part of your life to be. Fight the good fight by faith. Depend on the Holy Spirit. And this generation can be the strongest generation against sexual sin. Secondly, focus on giving and not receiving. Best sexual advice I can give. Focus on giving and not receiving. That is so countercultural. So that's exactly opposite to what the culture teaches you about your sex life, your, your sexuality. I'm, I'm struck when, you know, as I said, I always go back to the Westminster Standards to see what they say because they expound upon these commandments so well. The Shorter Catechism says in question 71, here's the answer uh, that it gives. It says the, second, the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. Wow, you thought it was hard before. Hard enough dealing with my own issues, but now the catechism says that the scriptures require us to be concerned for our neighbor's chastity as well. But isn't that the nature of covenant love? Love within a covenant. It's about giving, not receiving. A, sa- a sanctified sexual desire will find much more joy in giving and serving than it will in taking and receiving. Remember that passage we read, Tom read it a little earlier from 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me just quickly read it for you again. Beginning in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. I was always struck by that last phrase. That when you sin sexually, you are wronging someone else. You're sinning against other people. It seems like such a private, internal thing. But you're actually taking selfishly. You're abusing others. Even if it's just a young woman in a picture. You're abusing others. 
The word wrong there means literally defraud or take advantage of. So when you commit sexual sin, you are taking advantage of other people. Either the person you're with immediately, or their future spouse, or their future children, or your future spouse. You're, 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 you're abusing other people. You're not promoting their chastity, let alone not promoting your own. Sexual intimacy is designed by God to represent the giving of yourself to your spouse and to your spouse alone. And when it's turned into a selfish activity, it's going to give temporary pleasure. But it's the kind of pleasure that goes away completely when it's over and you wake up with nothing but guilt and shame in the morning. When I give advice and counsel to married couples, sometimes issues in their physical intimacy will come up as problem where they're having problems. Sometimes there are physical causes to that, but nine times out of ten, there's a relational cause to it. And you know what the relational cause usually comes down to, the root of that? It's usually selfishness on the part of one or both of the spouses. They haven't learned that the secret to great fulfillment is covenant love, which is expressed in giving and serving. Love serves others. Lust is inherently selfish and it inherently abuses others. As I have tried to help my own sons as they got to teenage years and faced all the same battles that I went through, it's particularly in regard to pornography, which is the gateway drug to all other sexual sin, I think, in some ways for young men. I've wrestled to find good resources to put in their hands to help them fight the battle. And what I've settled on after years of experience is one of the best tools to help them is a book that's written about pornography, but it's written by a woman. And my son, invariably, every one of my sons, when I handed it to them, they came back to me after reading the first chapter or so and said, Dad, this is written by a woman. Why are you having me read this? What does this have to do with me? I say, keep reading. Keep reading. And as they read the rest of the chapters, I haven't had a one of them come back to me and say, Dad, that was useless. Why did you have me read that? They understood finally. Because what this book is about, it's about a woman whose husband got deep into addiction to pornography. It destroyed his marriage, destroyed his family, destroyed his career. And she lays out in powerful ways the incredible damage that his hidden, private, selfish sin created. I just wanted my sons to see. It doesn't matter if anybody else knows about it. You're doing great damage, not just to yourself, but to everybody around you. That's not what God created this to be. It's meant to be an expression of covenant, giving, sacrificing love. So often when the question of sexual activity comes up among Christians, the question that young people always want to ask is, what can I get away with? How, how far can I go? Do you hear the attitude behind that? What can I get out of this? Instead of who can I serve? Finally, and always ultimately in these Ten Commandments, focus on Christ. Are you aware? I mean, are you fully aware of how well Christ knows you? How do you think about Him when you're involved either in sexual thoughts or sexual activities? Do you picture him with a smile of approval on his face? 
I ask that question because I think even married couples struggle with that. Because we're so broken. We're so damaged. We're so laden down with years of guilt that even in marriage, we deal with the damage. But understand that Christ, if you are willing and have the maturity and enter into that covenant relationship with a member of the opposite sex, God, you know, God intended for you to enjoy this gift and Christ rejoices as you enjoy it to his glory. To his glory. We said about this, this, this part of ourself, it, it, it's, there's something special about that desire in us. Something sacred. And Paul refers to it. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians 6. And I know I'm going to go a little long this morning. Please be patient with me. I hate to talk about sex. And the one time when the scriptures require me to do it, I'm just going to get as much out there as I can. So just give me an extra five minutes or so this morning. Because um, I'm not going to rush to get back to this topic. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is um, talking about sexual immorality. And listen to what he says. I'm going to begin in verse 13. The body, is, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, one flesh? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now there's a lot that Paul says there that I could spend a couple of sermons on, but let me just focus on this. Jesus Christ is deeply involved in your sex life. And you deeply involve him in whatever you're doing in your sex life. And you want him smiling with approval at your enjoyment of the gift that he intended to give you. Remember what Joseph, when Joseph was seduced by Potiphar's wife, she tried to seduce him into adultery. Do you remember how Joseph responded to that temptation? He said, how then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He understood that God was at the center of his sex life. And his relationship with God was so precious to him that he wasn't going to give it up for a cheap few moments of physical pleasure. And I want to say, do you want to know how to have great confidence and security in your marriage? Marry a spouse who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I know, I can stand here confidently today and say, my wife is going to be faithful to me. Not because she's such a great person. Not because I'm such a great person. But because she loves Jesus Christ. And she knows to turn away from me and to be unfaithful to me would be, be unfaithful to her Lord. I know that's not a price I'm willing to pay. The seventh commandment says to us, the marriage bed is a place of joy and satisfaction, a place of covenant celebration. Keep it pure and undefiled, even if it's years away. And let me leave you with Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 got me through 
many, many battles with sexual sin where I lost. So many times after I lost those battles, and some of you may have lost those battles already this morning, I would turn to Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 is where King David confessed his sin before God. His sin of lusting after Bathsheba as she bathed on a rooftop nearby. His sin of sleeping with Bathsheba because he couldn't control his lust. His sin of deceiving her husband and his sin of murdering her husband. He wrote Psalm 51. And he goes to God, who is at the center of his sex life. And he says to God, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Do you remember how the prophet Nathan responded? Nathan, the prophet Nathan brought God's response back to David. Do you remember what he said? The Lord has put away your sin. Oh, it did a lot of damage. But he said, the Lord has put away your sin. Based on what? That he confessed it. Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me clean again. Accept me 100% wholly because of your covenant love for me. As shameful as sexual sin is, it is eminently pardonable. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. Confess it. And you can be clean this morning, right now. Let's go to the table and celebrate. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift. The gift of sexual expression between a husband and wife. I pray for strength for those that are asked to wait, to defer, to sacrifice. For those who have received, continue to teach us to enjoy it only the way you've intended. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.